Hey everybody, this is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. In fact, today is the first special edition of this podcast. Uh, we're going to call it On the Road with What School Could Be in Hawaii. Um, my name is Josh Rapoon. I'm the host of this podcast, and I'm here with Evan Beachy. Evan, you are the director of the Kealaula Institute. What is what is Kealaula Institute at Kamehameha Schools? Uh, the Kealaula Innovations Institute uh, was formed four years ago in an effort to try and, and help transform um, teaching and learning at the Kamehameha Schools through an approach where we uh, create cohorts of teachers and we work with the teachers on the ground in the classroom to help them be reflective about their practice and kind of raise their own standards um, and use that as the, as the mechanism of change. Try to bring those people together, um, create a community of learners, um, and really push the entire system forward by creating that groundswell from the bottom as leadership works to try and create structures that'll help facilitate things like project-based learning or, or, or genius hour or what have you. So just to set the context uh, for readers who might be outside the state of Hawaii, Kamehameha Schools has three campuses, correct? Yeah, so Kamehameha Schools was founded in 1887 and um, Bernice Pawahi Bishop, who was the last uh, in line of Kamehameha's reign, uh, bequeathed her entire estate to the Kamehameha Schools, which is intended to um, educate young Native Hawaiian men and women. Um, since 1887, we've expanded to have three different schools, one on Maui, one on Hawaii Island, and one here on Oahu. Um, in addition to that, uh, there are 27 preschools throughout the state and also countless kind of community engagement and education programs designed to, um, you know, kind of raise the Hawaiian population. And if I've got my numbers right, it's roughly about 7,000 students across the campuses, the three campuses? Yeah, exactly. We're about 7,500 across the three campuses. And Kamehameha Schools has also dedicated uh, itself to the larger Native Hawaiian community in Hawaii as well. Absolutely. And that's kind of where the community engagement division of Kamehameha comes in because um, during a big reorg, um, right at the turn of the millennium, that was really part of the mission was to try and not only expand education um, in terms of the private school offerings, but also make a bigger impact across the state. And that's led to uh, working with DOE, working with Hawaii Charter School Commission, Kanaiokana Native Charter Alliance, and various other partners to kind of promote um, those educational practices that are going to give opportunities to young Hawaiian men and women out there. Awesome. So just again, by way of background and context, can you uh, give us like the 15 second version of your CV? Um, you began right as a middle school teacher at King Intermediate? Actually, no, I, I, I started out as a uh, coach for Special Olympics back in high school. Got it. That was really my first teaching job, Okay. to be honest. And then? Um, and then um, after that, it, it became a uh, you know, a summer school teaching opportunity when I was in college during uh, summertime back here in Hawaii. And uh, then I got my credential uh, as part of my degree, taught abroad in Latin America, moved home, taught at King Intermediate here locally, um, got a chance to work with some folks at Halau Kumana Charter School during the time that they were applying for a charter. Uh, and then I moved to the mainland to get my advanced degree um, and got the opportunity to work in some amazing schools up there that were super progressive, very, very different, very outside of the box, very creative. 
um, and it was just a great learning opportunity for me and got the chance to work as a teacher and a principal and, and school head. Awesome. So <clears throat> I want to talk about essential skills, but before we talk about that, uh, let's go back to the beginning, which is to say the late 1800s, and we have this factory model that's instilled by the Committee of Ten, and, and long story short, United States um, embarks on a process of education which is uh, largely segmented. You go from class to class to class, from biology to chemistry to history to music, um, and along the way you are assessed. Um, so can you kind of give us the short history of that style of assessment? And it's something that we've been living with for more than 100 years. Well, <laughs> the short history. The short history is test, write a paper, test, write a paper. Write a paper. And when I write a paper, give a presentation, if my English teacher likes a particular turn of phrase and I don't use it, I'm screwed. If I do, I'm great. Right. I mean, my famous experience uh, in high school was a teacher who wanted things written a certain way and prescribed them virtually line for line. Here's what you do in sentence one of the introduction. And I varied from that protocol and got a C and then followed his protocol to the letter and got an A every time. Right. Um, so it was really about, you know, assessment was about spitting it back, right? So we're talking about the lower levels of of Bloom's taxonomy, fundamental to thinking, right? You need to remember stuff and understand stuff and follow instructions and do things, but there's a lot more to the brain than just spitting stuff back. And that's where assessment has traditionally been, matching up with what we've seen since the Committee of Ten. So along the way, somewhere along the way, we start to see projects come into the picture. So instead of just test and paper, test and paper, teachers start to assign projects. Um, and so these projects uh, typically come at the end of the year, or you might be working on them throughout the year, or throughout the semester, or the quarter, whatever, but you, you essentially present your project in some way, shape, or form at the end of the year. So talk to us a little bit about how projects come into the picture um, and the way that we see that as, as maybe more of a change than it really was or is. I think that we see projects, I mean, project-based learning is a, is a pretty popularized term right now, you know, in education. Everybody's familiar with it, terms like integrated curriculum, um, all these kinds of things, relevant learning experiences, uh, inquiry. Um, that stuff's fairly new now, but it's been around in education for a really long time. Um, you know, John Dewey was famously writing about this at the turn of the 19th century, um, well, sorry, is that turn of the 19th, turn of the 20th century? Turn of the Early, 20th century. Turn of the 20th, <laughs> there you go. Yeah, he's not so, that old. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, he was, writing, he was writing about that stuff back then, and there were many Dewey schools that practiced those, those methods. But, you know, kind of the industrial education complex has dominated for so long and so heavily and so thoroughly, in part because that, too, is related to the military-industrial complex as well. Mm -hmm. And just, you know, world history, the Cold War, et cetera, et cetera, that project-based learning was pushed so far to the margins that there are just very few people who've grown up in today's world that had the experience of project-based learning when they were in school. So when presented with project-based learning education today, it kind of comes as a shock to their system because what they experienced was that industrial model of, you know, teachers who are stand and spit 
and students are there basically to receive and regurgitate. Right. So essentially the project is just another another add-on. It's just maybe a third way of getting at what a teacher might want to know about you and what you can do uh, or what possibly your your dispositions are, right? We might be getting at, maybe we were getting at things like resilience or grit or determination because you had to fight your way through this project and you had to... Sure, had and, to and I'm sure with some, like I can think of projects that I had in high school in otherwise traditional classes yeah, that me were too. super rich and valuable, right? Yeah, like, for sure. I know, I know you've told me Yep. Many a story, and I've seen <laughs> I've seen the film, the old eight millimeter. Yes. Um, so I think there were, but I, I think I don't think that that the intent of those projects was ever specifically outlined to be push this child's ability to think creatively, push their ability to synthesize. I think they were still focused more on did you provide the content, did you provide the necessary analysis. And what were the skills that you right. demonstrated, right, is related to whatever the content matter was, as opposed to really getting after how can this project stretch that kid's brain? I recall being um, a judge at an eighth grade science uh, project festival at the, at the end of the year. And those kids were so carefully scripted. They had their boards, their triboards. They had oh, all their information, yeah. and as as you walk through, basically they were completely prepared to present you with a bunch of information. But the minute you started asking them questions, why questions, how questions, what questions, you could you could see that they were thrown off in mm -hmm. moments like that. Mm -hmm. So that gets to what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, and and also too, you know, I've worked with many teachers over the years. Um, who've been dabbling in project-based learning, trying it out for the first time, different kinds of assessment. And, and one of the hard things for teachers, you know, because all the teacher credentialing, they teach you to follow scripts, basically. I mean, I'm overstating it, but in some ways I'm not. And, and so when it comes to project-based learning and you try to create a situation that's really open-ended, where kids have to figure it, out, figure it out, and you as the teacher have to let go of so much control, it's really hard for teachers, and they'll want to, for example, break a project down for the students into right. you know, an infinite number of parts, and they have to do each part to demonstrate their progress along the way, right. and it's all very carefully scaffolded, and I'm sure that's a wonderful exercise for the teacher to go through themselves to help them come to a better understanding of what the kids may encounter in the project. But the beauty of the project-based learning is when you don't have all those steps mm. and you discover those along the way and the teacher can provide feedback about the steps along the way just as much as about the content or you know, the concepts that are going on. So it's, I think it's how it's applied, yeah? Right, so let me, so let me set up the, the question about essential skills like this. So the way that I've thought about it is like in the beginning there is the teacher and the teacher doesn't ever really reveal to the students how they're being graded and so you're always kind of up against it as a student trying to figure out what it is that you're supposed to accomplish and then the next step and I'm actually talking about my own personal evolution as an educator as a teacher in the classroom the next step was well okay I'm gonna create a rubric and so the students are gonna be they're gonna be much more aware of what it is that I'm expecting of them and then the next step after that was and I remember this magic moment when I was teaching at La Pietra Hawaii School for Girls was, hey, I'm going to enroll my kids in the process of developing this rubric. So it becomes co-created, to use a ed jargon mm -hmm. term, right? So it's a co-created rubric. 
So that's pretty cool because the kids have ownership of that and then I'm merely holding them accountable for something that we all agree to. And then comes that next step after that, which is a rubric that actually is entirely of their creation. And that to me is a really significant step because you're transferring ownership of the learning process to them. But then there's a next step after that, which is a wide open board that doesn't actually have a grid yeah. on it. Yeah. So can you talk about the trend? I think everybody listening to us right now kind of gets that sequence up to the last two parts. So can you talk about the transition from a co-created rubric to a student-owned rubric to something that's wide open? I know you've done a lot of thinking about yeah, this in the yeah. past. Yeah. I, I mean, I, that's a good question. I think thinking about it in, in, in those three phases that you talk about, I would, I would even counter by saying that it's, it's not necessarily, I mean, the co-creation, the student creation, um, you know, they need practice creating rubrics just like teachers do. Right. I think that I think that the last level, I think that I think that we can co-create rubrics when students have the opportunity to have dialogue about what they're learning. And there are lots of teachers who, who do these kinds of things. But I, th I think the next level of rubrics basically are where it's not about who's creating them. It's really about the structure. Right. Because so many rubrics are set up where the goal of the rubric is for you to get the boxes ticked off on the far right hand side. Right. Right. A five, or a uh, an A, or uh, or even like a mastered, right? I mean, that's what it is today. Today we talk about mastery and say, okay, with a particular set of skills or habits or dispositions, um, what does developing look like? Right. Right. What does proficient look like? What does right. mastered look like? And really, mastered, developing, proficient are no different than A, B, C. So in some ways, the mastery rubric to me is like. That's something that's frustrated me for a lot of years because I don't really see it as anything specially different. And then what happens is with all rubrics, I mean, the exercise of figuring out what goes in the boxes, so to speak, in other words, what does mastery over addition look like, that's where teachers get together and will spend hours and hours debating what a five right. or a mastered addition looks like. And if you've ever tried to get a bunch of English teachers in a room at the high school level mm -hmm. and have them decide what mastery over a transitional sentence is. Yeah. It's like poking your eye with a hot whatever. As, as a history you know. teacher, I went through those same right. meetings I mean, and we is, argued. It's, yeah. Right. The right. intellectual, you know, <laughs> excitement and overconfidence of educators, you know, takes hold and pretty soon it turns into Lincoln Douglas debates for hours. Indeed. Right. And then you don't get the rubrics done. So what I think the next level is, is really not using those categories of ranking. It's really a matter of saying with those particular skills, dispositions, habits, what kind of cognitive engagement is going on? Right. Are you building your skills? Are you applying that mm -hmm. skill to a new situation? Or are you using that skill in a new and creative way to solve some kind of a problem? Again, it goes kind of black, back to Bloom's or whichever you know theorist you want to use, but kind of taking that notion of Bloom's where you divide that Bloom's pyramid up and you say, with these different skills, am I remembering? Am I analyzing? Am I synthesizing? And when you do that, now when you look at the rubric and you look at all those grid squares, you think, goodness, there's like a thousand ways to demonstrate that I understand a particular skill. So why write anything in that blank at all? 
Right. Right? I mean, how many times have we as teachers seen a kid's project and we're like, my God, it's the best project in the class. It's absolutely amazing. And then we look at the rubric that we wrote and we see like a five out of five and we read the box and we go, wait, it may have been the best thing I ever saw, but it technically doesn't match up with what this rubric says a five is. So then you fudge the grade and give them a five anyway, and then your entire thing is shot. Right. So why not leave the blank, you know, the box blank, and when you're doing the assessing, then you fill in the box. Mm. Here's the evidence. Here's mm. what I saw you do that showed you understand addition. Here's what I saw you do to create new knowledge with addition. Right. And I think that that's where we ultimately need to be going because it gives us more valuable information about the way kids think as well as how they're doing with respective skills. So I'm super struck because I've spent the last five months doing some heavy lifting to get this podcast off the ground, to stand it up and make it walk. And I I, I can think of so many moments along the journey where I did exactly that, where the where the rubric, where the box was blank, mm-hmm. and I knew I had to get somewhere with it. And then I looked at it as I was going through it, and then after I got done with it, and I looked back and went, wow, like I actually understand what happened here. Right. And, and, it, and not in a great way, not in a, in a checkbox way, but in a storytelling kind of way, like exactly. here's how I pass through this particular moment, here's how I work through it. The, the, whole, the whole business of how a podcast ends up going up into an RSS feed and ends up somewhat somewhere up in the cloud, some ether sphere, was a total mystery to me. But I worked my way through it, and now I see how I worked my way through it. And I think technology is the point where we can leverage what you just described, where you are creating and going through a process and you're reflecting constantly as you go through and create that process, right? And if there's a way for technology to not only capture the process, but capture meaningful reflection on what you're learning, that's that's the big piece. And I think that, that when that technology also leverages the ability and the reality of crowdsourcing and social media and, and, you know, as the communication of the world, we can start to see value mm-hmm. in people's self-assessments, right? You self-assess and you're validated by other people. They agree, they disagree. But you completing the blanks in that rubric, so to speak, mm-hmm. that's really together. The fabric of all those stories is what weaves, weaves mm-hmm. the grand tale of your learning journey. In fact, if you go back and look at the journey of the last five months of me developing this podcast with my partners, um, what what you would want to take into account was the, the zillions of emails that were written, yeah. the text messages that were sent, um, images that were sent back and forth. Yeah, There's images. All, all kinds of stuff. And so what I, if I wanted to collect all that evidence, it's probably in about 10 different places, LinkedIn, my text message thread, my email inbox, all these places, Facebook, um, Instagram, et cetera. But if you were to pull it all together, I could actually show you evidence besides the fact that this podcast actually exists and you're right. listening to it right now, right. that I can, I can actually present you evidence of how I went through the process. So, so it turns out, and I figure what the heck, since we're, we're right here and we're going for it here, there is a tool that's emerging yes, now there is. that allows for that to happen. So um, what is it and what does it do? So the, the app is called Unruler and The app essentially tries to do much what I was just describing. The app allows a person to 
document their learning in a manner very much like Instagram. Mm -hmm. So you create posts for your feed. These posts can consist of a variety of different forms of media. Mm -hmm. um, you caption the post. And the key part here is that you also tag the post. But tagging the post in this case means that you are specifically tagging the skills, habits, and dispositions that you are demonstrating mm -hmm. in that post, mm -hmm. right? And so over time, you create this feed that looks, I guess it's kind of, you know, it's an e-portfolio. And there are many of those, right? Blogs and things like that showing the course of my work. But the thing with the tagging is that in Unruler, in your learning community, so in a class or a group of classes, people have the opportunity when they follow you and look at your feed to kind of comment and agree or challenge or question your use of tags. And in that assessment of the tags with a simple double tap is what helps to provide the data around the effectiveness of your particular post Right. and whether or not it is a demonstration of the kind of learning you say it is. Mm, okay. And so it's a social network, mm. it's, a, it's an e-portfolio, it's a self-assessment tool, it's a peer assessment tool, um, and the data is collected in such a way where, you know, I mean, you say data to educators, and most of the time people cringe because, you know, line graphs and things like that. Right. But the beautiful thing about Unruler is they really just use a couple shapes and some simple colors to give you a very quick look at how you're doing overall within that rubric that you've set up for your class, right. right? And so that rubric can be much like what we were just talking about with your skills, your types of engagement that are going on, um, and get a quick view of how many times you've shown something and how many people have agreed that right. you've demonstrated that. And that creates a different kind of efficacy and a different kind of data around an e-portfolio, because that's one thing we don't have Right, everybody's like, what data are you gonna use to show the prove learning if you're not gonna use tests? And it's like, we're gonna use portfolios. And that's absolutely true, but boy, looking through all those portfolios of every kid can take a long time, even though it's super impressive. But if you have some way to empirically represent the work that you've done with those skills, that's where that's the ticket to me. Because then we're talking about large numbers of demonstrations of right. learning as opposed to just an N of one or two from some tests. So just to be clear, I've got, so one more question, but but just one quick clarification before I go to the last question. So Unruler is actually spelled? U-N-R-U-L-R. And just tack on .com yeah, at the end of that, com, and yeah. you'll be able to see what it's all about. And um, um, it's, again, question of clarification, it's being piloted at KS? Well, it's actually, uh, we, we're piloting it here at KS. Um, there are some classes that are using it at our Maui campus. Um, the cohort, uh, the Kealaula Innovations cohort this year of 30 teachers, we're using it so the teachers can document their professional learning um, and assess themselves against our own set of teaching expectations. Um, but Unruler is in full-fledged use at a number of different schools. I'm, I don't even know all of their partners, but I know they're working with Hawaii Technology Academy, a bunch of other local schools, um, and even starting to branch out nationally. Cool. So if you want to know more about it, go to unruler.com. Yeah, go check it out. Go check it out. Okay, so last question, and, and I'm going to you know, make this a little bit personal and kind of bring it home. So you have a beautiful daughter, Malia. And... In thinking again about the blank boxes, 
What do you think she, and I'm actually, you know, I, I'm here in your office yeah. and I'm looking at her picture over your shoulder right now, which yeah. is kind of cool. <laughs> what, what do you think she's going to do in those boxes over the next few years? What are your, what's your sense of that? Oh, what, you know? goodness me. Yeah. Yeah. It brings it home, right? Because you're yeah, talking about. I, you know, I, I, um, that's a really great question. That's a really good question, Uncle Josh. I, I, <laughs> okay, it's now full, out. Full disclosure. <laughs> Evan is my nephew. Yeah, I am his uncle. uncle. There we go. It's out um, there. Okay. Uh, I, what, what goes in those boxes for her, I have no idea. But that's why those boxes are empty. There you go. And, and she's going to figure that out along the way if she if she's given the chance to do that right that's correct she I mean, has to she, be given the she chance has to, to be do given that. the chance to do it and and instead I'm, of being treated as a deficit uh, to be corrected correct. to use young Zhao's ideas or instead correct. of being graded along someone else's trajectory of learning or resilience or whatever it is that she chooses that path absolutely absolutely it's it's a you know i, I feel like education is a self-deterministic Mm -hmm. you know, endeavor. And I want her to create her own rubric, you know, and I'll be there to help co-create it with her. But at some point she should be creating her rubrics every day. We create our own rubrics in life. I mean, look at the rubric you've created around making a podcast and launching it. You know what I mean? It's and and the one you created in, in creating Kealu right. Institute. Yeah. Right? So, exactly. I mean, right. I, I, th I think that's the key is, is because we just have no idea what's going to happen yeah. The more we worry about what specifics they need to show to convince, you know, some arbitrary determinant of, of success that they're, you know, right. competent. Yeah. And I and yeah. it feels like kind of kind of to to put a, a bow on it at the end here, that it's one thing to to move educators in the direction, in this particular direction, if that's where they want to mm -hmm. go. It's another thing to move parents. Yes. Um, and that, that's, that's going to be for another conversation for another time about the parent community out there and how they're you know, swimming through the turbulent waters uh, from the 20th yeah. century to the 21st century and, and what kind of supports they need to understand concepts like what you and I have been, just been talking about. Um, so that'll be super interesting. Awesome. Absolutely. That's, awesome. that's a very big part of of the entire movement in education and, and parent education. And, you know, I'll just leave it with this is when parents get a taste of what we're talking about giving their kids, yeah, man, they want to go back to school. Yeah. Yeah. There's an awesome scene in most likely to succeed where if you've seen the film, the, the star of the show is Samantha, this mm -hmm. young shy woman who becomes the, the play yeah. director, the right? Director, and, yeah. and her mother yeah. that, to watch her mother kind of get enrolled in this and go through all this, you know, uh, trepidation about why, questioning it. Why aren't we taking? Why isn't this she problem? learning the capital of Croatia? Right. To, you know, <laughs> right? And then, and then to see her come to the other side of it. So that'd be great. Yeah. Evan, thank you for this conversation today. Hey guys, this is uh, the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. This is the On the Road edition. Actually, the very first one. So, thanks for listening, and keep an eye out for the next one coming up soon.